It's Friday, 16th of June, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, big and surprising changes in Turkey and Nigeria's monetary regimes. Are these for real or just temporary diversions on the road to financial crisis? But first, I'm joined by Greek Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. I wanted to do something different today. Each week, we hold these drop-ins, short-form online briefings, which give Capital Economics clients a chance to grill the Economist team on a whole range of, of topics. The ones this past week have included a session on China's May data and a post-Fed, post-ECB, pre-Bank of England briefing. What I'd like to do is take some of the client questions from these sessions and throw them at you because they really do give a flavor of what's on clients' minds and, and what we're focused on too. So first, China. Obviously, the May numbers put the post-COVID recovery story in a different light. There's lots of gloom around now about the outlook. Question from a client is how much of this gloom is down to expectations about the post-COVID recovery being too optimistic in the first place? Well, I think a bit of context is needed. If you actually look at the strength of the recovery so far, it's not actually been that disappointing. GDP is a bit below its pre-COVID trend, at least according to our China activity proxy, but it's not massively below its trend. The recovery appears to be fizzling out a bit sooner than we had anticipated, but we'd always said that by the middle of this year, we thought the best of the recovery would have happened and that growth would slow back to trend. Now, I think one way of thinking about what's happening in China is to decompose what's happening in different sectors of the economy. So you've got the manufacturing sector, which has been weak and we had anticipated would be weak because of what's happening in global manufacturing. We spoke last week about this weird cycle, about how we'd had the surge in manufacturing in 2021, 2022 across the globe. And then that was starting to come off at the back end of last year and into this year as consumption patterns normalized and inventory had been rebuilt. See, China's the world's biggest manufacturer and it's bearing the brunt of that. So that is to be expected. Likewise, the weakness in construction, given the overhang of supply in the property sector and all the problems there with excess leverage amongst developers and so on and so forth that we've written about extensively on the China service, that we always thought would be, would be weak. Instead, we had anticipated that the recovery would be driven by the services sector, and indeed services have been strong. But the services rebound slowed in April and then it slowed again in May. I think that's the surprise. It's the fact that this rebound in services, which obviously has driven recoveries and sustained recoveries in advanced economies over the past six months. Actually, it seems to have fiddled out sooner than expected in China, partly perhaps because China doesn't have the same amount of accumulated savings during the pandemic that advanced economies had, perhaps because of broader concerns amongst consumers about the, the trajectory of the economy. But that seems to be where, if there's any disappointment, that's where, that's where it lies. Unsurprisingly, loads of questions in that session about what the government's going to do in the face of all of this weak data. Uh, what kind of stimulus are they going to roll out? Talk through our expectation on that front. And will it make these structural imbalances that we keep talking about with regard to China's long-term outlook? Will it, will it worsen those? Well, herein lies the rub. I've just said that the weakness and perhaps the disappointment lies in the services sector and the services rebound. The answer to that should be channel more money to households, get consumption going. That's what's going to sustain your recovery and get the recovery going again. Unfortunately, we know that from history, and it seems that the same thing's going to happen again this time around, stimulus efforts tend to focus on investment and infrastructure. And there was a story 
in the Wall Street Journal over the past week about this new trillion one bond that might be issued in order to fund infrastructure investments. So not necessarily going into the property sector, which has typically been the focus of stimulus, but instead on wider infrastructure, but still investment. It's not about channeling money to households and getting consumer spending going and getting the services sector reinvigorated. So I suspect there will be stimulus. It will be channeled in the wrong area. It won't necessarily reignite the property bubble, but it will exacerbate this problem of excess investment and insufficient consumption and therefore broader imbalances in the economy that make us relatively pessimistic about the the medium-term outlook for China's economy. We held a post-Fed ECB briefing this past week. Lots of clients attending, lots of discussion about where rates are going, the impact on uh, economic growth. One question from a client did stand out simply, why has the German economy been so weak compared to the rest of the Eurozone? Yes, good question. I think there are two principal reasons. One is about the structure of Germany's economy insofar as it's much more manufacturing orientated than, say, France or Italy, where services are a much larger share of the economy. And of course, as we've spoken about, it's manufacturing globally that has been particularly weak. So that has tended to affect Germany more than other Eurozone economies because it's more exposed to that global manufacturing downturn. That's the first reason. The second reason is that Germany's energy mix is more weighted towards natural gas than other major Eurozone economies with perhaps the exception of Italy. So it was harder hit by Europe's energy shock than say say France. Those two things then feed into one another. In particular, Germany has lots of energy intensive industries that were probably in structural decline. And that structural decline has been accelerated by the energy shock last year. So if you think about things like metallurgy, petrochemicals, those are in long run decline in Germany. And that decline has been accelerated by the energy shock. So two principal reasons, energy shock and structure of Germany's economy, and those two things have interacted together. For the coming week, the Bank of England June meeting is the big event. We're expecting another 25 basis point hike, but it was interesting on that drop-in to hear our chief UK economist, Paul Dales, make the case for a 50 basis point move. But here's a client question from that briefing. What's the chance that the bank decides to pause after the June hike, like the Fed, to see how monetary tightening is feeding through? Well, there's a chance. There's always a chance, but I think it's pretty low. One of the most significant pieces of data over the past week or so was the labour market data from the UK, which were pretty ugly and, of course, led to another sell-off at the short end of the gilt curve. So it's really about the tightness of the labour market, the rapid growth in wage gains that don't seem to be cooling, unlike elsewhere in, in advanced economies. And that's what the Bank of England is going to have to do more work to push back against now. I think the inevitable result of that will be an economic downturn at some point over the next six, nine, 12 months. And at some point, the bank will judge that it has done enough and we will shift to the language of skipping meetings or pausing. But I don't think we're there yet. So I think, yes, another hike at the next meeting and and at least one more after that. I suspect they're going above five and probably to five and a quarter. We also had a question about the UK housing market in that briefing as well. The head of our UK housing coverage, Andrew Wishart, will be joining a post-Bank of England briefing this coming Thursday. He'll invariably be talking bank rate, mortgage rates and, and the price outlook. But this client was asking how much the Bank of England should consider the housing market when it sets policy. Well, it's something it will keep in mind, but it's really a secondary consideration at this point. I think the primary concerns are inflation and by extension, the tightness of the labour markets. Now, of course, all these things in an economic system are are interlinked. So 
if the housing market falls off a cliff, that will tend to depress activity and demand and by extension, feed into the labor market and, and dampen inflation. So in some ways, the housing market is a key transmitter of tighter monetary policy to the to the rest of the economy. But in terms of whether or not that tighter monetary policy will lead to deeper problems in housing, I think that's a secondary consideration for the bank at this stage. It's really still about inflation and the labor markets. That was Neil Shearing on the key questions from the week's client drop-ins. We run seven of these online briefings for Capital Economics clients each week. As mentioned, the coming week, we've got a session on the Bank of England, but also an Asia-dedicated briefing, which will cover Japanese inflation, India's economic slowdown, and much more. I'll link to our events page in the podcast notes so you can see what's coming up, and you can also watch some recordings there of previous sessions. Now, it's been an exciting few weeks in EM investing. The re-election of Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the election of Bola Tinubu in Nigeria appear to both have been catalysts for an abrupt shift away from policies that have dragged on both economies in recent years, if not risked full-blown crises. Sharp devaluations in the lira and naira are very visible signs of change, but is this change that's going to stick? Jason Tuvi and Liam Peach from our EM team sat down earlier this week to discuss what's been happening and paths ahead, and you can hear that conversation now. It begins with Jason explaining what's been happening in an extraordinary week in Nigerian markets. Tinubu has certainly ticked off the two major policy shifts that investors were hoping to see. In his inauguration speech in late May, he declared somewhat abruptly, actually, that fuel subsidies were being removed and prices at the pump have subsequently trebled. Uh, in that same speech, he talked of unifying the central bank's various exchange rate windows. That added to expectations that a devaluation of the Naira was on the cards and developments on that front have moved very quickly over the past week or so. We had the suspension of Central Bank of Nigeria Governor Godwin Emafiele and then this Wednesday, reports emerged that the currency had been devalued and the exchange rate windows unified. The CBN did eventually confirm that later in the day. And as we speak, the Naira is trading at around 600 to the dollar. But the moves have been quite volatile. At one point this week, it fell as far as 790, which is even weaker than the parallel market rate of 760 to the dollar. I guess it's worth pointing out at this stage that these Policy changes were expected regardless of who won the election back in February. President Tanubu, though, was at the time at least deemed to be the least investor-friendly of the three main presidential candidates. He is, after all, from the same political party as his predecessor, President Buhari, who established many of the distortive and unorthodox policies that are now being dismantled, it seems. And so on that basis, I think, Fair to say that Tanuba has certainly sprung a surprise and moved more quickly and aggressively than we and many others had expected. I guess, Liam, in Turkey, it's fair to say that it before and even in the immediate aftermath of the election in Turkey, only a very small minority expected such a policy shift that we, we've seen there. I guess so far, apart from the sharp falls in the lira, as well as some changes to key policy-making personnel, it's been more words than action. What should we be looking out for next there? Yeah, I think you're right, Jason. You know, there has been a lot of appointments in recent weeks and there appears to be a shift underway towards more orthodox policymaking. The appointment of Mehmet Simcek to finance minister 
was an important step towards rebuilding credibility in Turkey. That was followed a few weeks ago with a sharp four on the lira, signs that policymakers in Turkey were easing back their ethics interventions. And then last week, there was the appointment of a new central bank governor. All of this has helped to generate a lot of optimism and encouragement that there's a shift underway. I think what we really need to see now is, is the central bank delivering interest rate hikes. The meeting that we have on the 22nd of June, I think is, is the key one that everyone's looking for. I think really what the central bank needs to deliver is an interest rate hike to around 20% or so to show that this policy shift is credible. There is some concern about whether the central bank might start implementing more gradual interest rate hikes. I think really what investors want to be encouraged, and this is the real deal, is a sharp rise in interest rates very quickly and the new central bank governor to show commitment to keeping interest rates at a high level to bring inflation down sustainably. I think also what we need to see over the coming months is policymakers gradually removing some of their FX restrictions. You know, over the past 12 to 18 months, the Turkish Central Bank has put in various restrictions on foreign currency in the private sector to suppress demand for dollars. I think these need to now be relaxed gradually and help that exchange rate move to a more, more fairer level. Yeah, I think my main concern when it comes to Turkey and this probably stems from the fact that having covered Turkey during the previous orthodox shift when Nashi Akbar was CBRT governor, is that Erdogan suddenly changes his mind and everything unravels again? What are your thoughts? Is this the real deal, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's the big concern, really, and it is hard to tell at this point whether this is the real deal. Like I mentioned a minute ago, I think there are some encouraging signs that this is, this is a real shift towards orthodoxy. However, there have been some less encouraging signs, maybe, that this is only a half-baked shift towards orthodoxy. The lira's sharp sell-off a few weeks ago appears to have stalled. So the lira is not returning to fair value as quickly as we and many others might have wanted. And also the new central bank government has been relatively quiet since she was appointed last week. Yeah, I think a lot of people maybe expected her to be a little bit more vocal with her communications. I guess she's got the, the opportunity to do that next week. But I think there's, there's a, there doesn't seem to be the sense of urgency among policymakers to deliver comments and, 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 and put these actions into place very quickly. I think as far as Erdogan's concerned, obviously, we know that he hasn't given up on his view on interest rates and inflation. He's still an enemy of high interest rates, something that I think is a risk in Turkey. Erdogan could reverse course at any moment. As you mentioned, that was the experience with Nasi Agbal in, in 2021. You know, this could just be a temporary policy shift in Turkey, and Erdogan may reverse course later down the line. I think there there is a big risk of that, and I think it's one thing that we would not underestimate in Turkey. You know, the size of the policy shift that needs to happen is is very large. You know, the rise in interest rates that the central bank needs to make, probably in the region of 30% or so at some point this year, that's going to come with a big cost to the private sector. It's going to push up debt servicing costs. Big falls in the lira are going to push up inflation. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how policymakers navigate a lot of these challenges, and particularly Erdogan, whether, whether he feels that the orthodox shift isn't working the way he wanted. So for now, I think we're, we're sort of watching how developments play out. But I think for investors, I think they're going to need to see these actions put in place for a few months before, before they become really confident that this is the real deal. What, what about Nigeria, Jason? You know, what are your thoughts on, on how sustainable this shift towards more credible policies is going to play out? I think similar to Turkey, really, we retain a sort of high degree of scepticism. There are certainly plenty of 
unknowns as well as challenges that, that lie ahead for the Tanubu administration. First and foremost will be whether the CBN refrains from tightening its grip on the Naira again in the coming months, particularly if it comes under further downward pressure. President Tanubu had after all expressed the desire on the campaign trail for a strong Naira. And to be honest, it's still not completely clear to what extent the CBN has stepped back. After all, it talked about eligible transactions in its press release, meaning that it's still entirely possible that restrictions on access to foreign currency for the purposes of importing a whole range of imported products remain in place. Another test will be whether the authorities implement a fresh hike to fuel prices. Nigeria is heavily dependent on imports to meet local fuel demand, and the fall in the Naira means that these imports now cost even more in local currency terms. When the removal of subsidies was announced, the state oil firm NNPC declared that fuel prices would move in line with market dynamics. But it may actually find itself under political pressure to refrain from another large increase so soon after subsidies were removed. And that would be particularly the case if signs of social unrest emerge. It's worth noting that nationwide protests took place in 2012 after an attempt to remove fuel subsidies, and those subsidies were subsequently reinstated. There are some other things to watch out for too, including whether the CBM will be allowed to hike interest rates, I guess similar to Turkey here, in order to tackle high inflation. Again, Tanubu, in somewhat an Erdogan-esque moment, said that he wants lower interest rates. He's also said that most of the freed up resources from the removal of fuel subsidies will be spent, suggesting that the public finances will remain on a worsening trajectory. So overall, I think now, we'd sort of never tell anyone to get carried away regardless of the situation. But I think in this case, this is certainly a place where this applies. I think equally, that's not to say we should completely dismiss these policy shifts, both in Nigeria and in Turkey. I think if they do stick, I mean, ultimately, this could transform the long-term outlook for these economies. Liam, are there any lessons that we should glean from similar instances in the emerging world? Yeah, so I think that yeah, the benefits of shifting to more orthodox policymaking at large. You know, both countries, Turkey and Nigeria, would benefit from a reduction in their risk premia. I think this would be good for you know, foreign invest interest in their countries and, and more generally for, for assets and the financial markets in both countries. I think you'd also see a long-term reduction in inflation. You know, we know what Turkey needs to do to achieve low single-digit inflation. It needs to raise interest rates quite sharply and keep interest rates at quite high levels. The experience in emerging markets that have been able to bring inflation down from double digits to single digits is that it requires real interest rates to remain very high for many years. And the benefits of bringing inflation down sustainably would be quite large. You, you wouldn't have the same distortions and, and misallocation of resources that you get with high inflation economies. It would lay the foundations for more sustainable growth and also Coming alongside much tighter monetary policy and fiscal policy, you'd also probably have a reduction in domestic demand and an improvement in balance of payments dynamics. So a lot of the macro stability risks that are built up in both of these countries would hopefully come down. So I think those are, those are some of the, the biggest benefits that both countries could experience by shifting towards autopsy. But I think you know, achieving those benefits is going to take, take many years to get there. 
And that's it for this episode. Look out for our EM Teams coverage of events in Nigeria and Turkey. Check out our drop-ins. You can find it all on our website, capitaleconomics.com. For full access to all our macro and market insight, get CE Advance. That's our premium service. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at Spotify, Apple, etc. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.